Welcome to the Brass Spittoon, the podcast of the Front Porch Republic. We'll chew on issues timeless and timely with a focus on place, limits, and liberty. I'm your host, John Murdoch. Today we are joined by filmmaker John DeGraff. Almost 25 years ago, DeGraff diagnosed America with a case of affluenza. Today he is looking to beauty to help unite an angry nation. We'll discuss a few of his dozens of films and a forthcoming project on Stuart Udall. But first, allow me a few words on this new venture into the world of podcasting. Porters don't normally chase trends, but conversation is nothing new. And our hope is to bring to your ears guests worth hearing. But you won't hear from us too often. The plan is just one podcast every other month. So feel free to subscribe without worrying about an avalanche of unwanted bluster. Also, in case you're wondering, the written interviews you've long associated with the Brass Platoon will continue as well. The podcast version will normally rotate months with Matt Stewart's typecast. So let's get to it. Pull up a chair. Well, John DeGraff, welcome to the Brass Platoon podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be on, and I'm a fan of the Front Porch Republic, so it's it's great to be on this show. Well, we do hope to have a wide variety of, of guests uh, on the podcast, but we begin with two guys named John who both like to hike and both have some ties to Idaho, yet we aren't exactly mirror images. You just <laughs> describe yourself as a not particularly religious man of the left, and you've got the pay stub from PBS to prove it, but you seem to have a desire not for total Team Blue victory, but for building bridges with conservatives and front porch. It's certainly a place where neighbors from all political and religious strife mix and mingle. So again, a very hearty welcome to you. And let me start with what may become a regular question for our guests. What does home mean to you? Well, that's, I was pondering that. That's a, that's a good question, especially in these days. I mean, used to be said that home is where the heart is, but now it seems to be that the heart can be in quite a few places because we're in a modern world where travel is easy and, and the temptations of all kinds of things make, make uh, us move a lot, I think, in, in our society, although that's changing a little bit back to, to staying more in one place. But I think picking at least some place that you want to make a life and, and being part of that as much as possible. It doesn't necessarily have to be the place that you were born or raised, but there, there has to be some place that you think have an allegiance to. I'm reminded of uh, Vachel Lindsay, the great kind of American popular poet of the early 1900s, who walked uh, from uh, Springfield, Illinois, his home, to Santa Fe, preaching what he called the gospel of beauty. He passed out leaves and he read poems and towns and people took care of him all the way on this uh, several month, 600 mile journey that he was walking. And one of the things he, he talked about there was the new localism term he used. And he said that young people in these far flung villages uh, who were really getting tempted by the fact that as they, you know, once you've seen, they've seen Paris, you can't keep them down on the farm kind of thing. And so mm -hmm. they were, they were tempted to go to the cities and these places. And he said, that's fine. Do that initially. Learn what you can. Learn about the arts and things and stuff that you may not see in your town, but then come back. Come back and try to, to make your town the most beautiful uh, around in terms of, 
of theater and arts and music and trees and flowers and 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 every and everything in that sense. And I think that was a, a good message that uh, Rachel Lindsay had for young people. So it, the, the big issue is how we make it possible for people to remain both on the land and in these small places where uh, economically life has become very difficult. Uh, Gracie Olmsted, who's written a lot for Front Court Republican, mm-hmm. one of one of the people whose writing I admire most, has this new book uprooted where she talks about her return to Emmett, Idaho, right near you in Boise, that mm-hmm. uh, where where she grew up and where she's trying to figure out whether she actually wants to move back to or not. But she looked the, at the community and was thinking just about what are the things that could be done that would make this place uh, not just a nice place to be, which it is, but a place where people could could thrive and survive and, and so forth. So those are the big questions that we have right now is, is what kind of uh, policies, in a sense, might make it possible for people to um, to make a home in these places that they're now tempted to leave and dash off to the Seattle's of the world and so forth. And you currently live in this Seattle of the world. And tell us a little bit about how you got there and, and how long you've been there. Is that home for you? Yeah, it, it is home. You know, I started, I grew up in the suburbs. Well, first in the city of San Francisco, that's where I was born. And, and then in the suburbs of San Francisco, uh, went to one year of college at Berkeley. It didn't do very well. And uh, ended up joining uh, the Volunteers in Service to America, the Domestic Peace Corps, in the first year of existence, 1965. And this has sent me to live on an Indian reservation in northern Wisconsin, a little place called Odena on the shore of Lake Superior, where I was exposed to a completely different life, exactly, and not necessarily the life that Rachel Lindsay was talking about, but a, a different life, a life where people did not have running water. You ran to the pump for your water, sometimes in 30 degrees below zero. Uh, and I, I learned about things like poverty and racism and those, those kinds of things. Stayed there for a couple of years went back to school for a while, stayed in the Midwest for 14 years uh, in both Wisconsin and then in uh, Duluth and Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, actually just wimped out. Basically, to be honest, I wimped out on winter and decided <laughs> I wanted to go back to the coast, but not necessarily San Francisco. And uh, my family had come, my mother's family had come from Seattle. Uh, my parents had actually moved back there, so I went out to try it out. Have been there now for 41 years. So most of my life has been spent in Seattle. It is home. And a lot of that time, much of that time, you have been you've been making film. Uh, but can you tell us a little bit about your your roots as a filmmaker? Were you a Steven Spielberg type who was doing this as a boy and then just kept it going, or did you find this a bit later in life? How did how did you and the camera get acquainted? I worked on started my first film when I was 30 years old. So I, I was had no training in film. I uh, did some radio, and I had met an old character that I thought would make a good film subject, and ended up uh, uh, making a film about him with a a person who knew what they were doing. Could you do the camera and the editing and all that? Together, we made a film. We gave it to Minnesota Public Television, and lo and behold, uh, shock of my life, they entered into National Public Television's local production award and to make a long story short we won the top award of the year for 1978 um that's local 
public television production of the year, which was quite a shock for me. But it kind of gave me this thing called a track record, made me think maybe I can do this stuff. And uh, it took took four or five years before I was doing it on a regular basis. I had to work a half-time job in a hospital. And then I moved out to Seattle uh, just before the completion of my second film, which was the, my, the first film I had that was na went national on PBS. And it was a fascinating story of a Shakespearean actor named Alan Chadwick turned master gardener and his work in creating these beautiful, beautiful gardens that were not only attractive physically, but produced an enormous amount of food in, in an organic and sustainable fashion. Uh, and he was just an interesting guy. And so that, that film got me a little bit more of a track mm -hmm. record, as they say. And soon after I was, I was, uh, working with the Seattle public television station and making films on a regular basis. And I, I think it's fair to say one of your most uh, widely watched films comes from 1997, Affluenza. Uh, it uh, sparked a sequel, Escape from Affluenza, and a best-selling book. And uh, it's now amazingly almost a quarter century since that, uh, since that film first came out. So, uh, but Tell us, what is affluenza, and is America still afflicted? Well, it's exactly a, half, a quarter of a century since we started doing the filming on that particular videotaping on that particular show. Uh, affluenza is, is a kind of, a, it's a joke word in a way. It's a contraction of the words affluent and influenza. It's a sort of a disease of materialism, of consumerism that uh, my view, in my view, has inflicted. Most Western cultures, most of the world in many ways, but particularly the United States, where there's always been this push that the good life is the good life, that we want to have more and more and more. And what I tried to argue in that film, and we, we made the film in a funny way, full of humor. Uh, we talked about this sort of dread disease and the symptoms of the disease, like shopping fever and resource exhaustion and and things like that. We had a whole number of symptoms that were, you know, again, playing with, with, with the whole thing. And then we had an epidemiology of the disease, you know, how the history, how, how people got it. And then finally treatment, you know, was there any kind of cures for this, which especially then bled over into escape from Africa, which was almost solely about uh, ways that people were taking up voluntary simplicity, um, many of those kind of things, finding ways to scale down and scale back and so forth. So uh, the film hit a nerve. I think it had we, the title was funny, so it caught people's attention. And uh, it, it started with an A. So we were actually at the top of the PBS, uh, alpha, their list of programs was alphabetical. We were right there, AFF, right at, at, the, at the top of the list with, with help. Uh, and then I think it just came at the right time. If you remember this time in the second uh, Clinton administration, the United States was undergoing a, a rapid increase in prosperity that was affecting, you know, obviously more the rich than, than others, but was was affecting everybody. And we were seeing this rapid growth and people felt like um, they could consume as if there was no tomorrow, you know, uh, bigger houses, more bigger cars, all these kinds of things because, wow, we're just gonna, we're never gonna stop growing like this. And 
not much concern about what is this doing to the environment or even what is this doing to us in our personalities and our connections in our sense of community. So, but um, because of that, because it was the right time for the film and the right word in some ways, it took off and it became uh, a real PBS hit, one of the top top shows on public television, certainly for the year, uh, certainly by far my most successful film in, in the sense of the number of viewers, which is probably now up to around 20 million. Uh, and then it spawned um, an invitation to write a book on the subject from a New York uh, uh, agent. And I, I got a we got a contract and I wrote the book with two other people because I had never written a book before. So it was kind of good to do it with with uh, some others. But the book became it's now in nine languages. It became an international bestseller. It's now sold at last count somewhere around 175,000 copies. Um, I don't know that it'll ever make 200, but it's had three, it's in its third edition and uh, uh, done very well. And the, the word affluenza has now become a part of our language in some ways. It's in the dictionary. Uh, it's been used in some pretty terrible ways, like as an excuse to get a kid in your former right. state of Texas uh, off for killing four people. You know, um, but uh, and that, of course, was a time in which I got a lot of interviews about the subject, as you can imagine. But it's been a I, I think the issue is not changed at all in some ways. I mean, you know, we go back and forth between periods in which it's a little harder to spend like crazy and other periods in which it seems to be easier to do so. But the desire to do so and the, the definition that the American dream is the goods life not the good life, but the good life, having the stuff and all of that, um, has not changed appreciably. And I, I think that it's still a problem. So, so as you, as you noted, a, a lot of the focus of the uh, affluenza films was on the idea of voluntary simplicity. But uh, I saw a comment recently on a, uh, a YouTube version of this, which I don't know if it's authorized or not, but uh, a commenter said it's been 20 years and it, pretty clear that not enough people volunteered. Um, so how how do you deal with that? Uh, I think certainly there seem to be more people interested in these issues. We've got places like Front Porch. We've got writers like Wendell Berry that, uh, that capture many of these same, same themes. But, uh, but America seems to be going on the, generally on the same problematic path that it was on at the uh, turn of the century. How, how as a filmmaker do you deal with that and the fact that not everything has changed because of your film? Well, it's interesting, you know, and I, I've certainly heard from many, many people that the film affected them, that they mm -hmm. actually personally changed their lifestyles in some way. What, I, what was also clear to me was that, that this is not a, a political issue per se. Uh, it, the film received uh, a widespread viewing in conservative communities as much as in liberal communities. Uh, the university, for example, that bought the most copies of the film to use was Brigham Young, uh, which is hardly a, a left-wing university. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I was told that from 1997, when the film originally came out until 2001, you didn't go through Brigham Young without seeing the, the film. So that was an interesting thing to me. Uh, so, and, and the people in Salt Lake, the station there said, your film is really interesting for us because 
it appeals to both sides of our community. We have a conservative Mormon and, 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 and a conservative part of our community. We also have a lot of people who came here as environmentalists who love na nature and who are on the left side of the political spectrum. And this is one of the few films that they, they all agree on. That said, it is true that not much has changed and a film can't do that. And so I've, I've looked uh, over the years for other ways to all, also get the message out. And so I started an organization in 2002 called Take Back Your Time. The idea behind that was that we were paying a high price that um, reducing our consumerism somewhat would not be sacrificed as much as the sacrifice we were already making to have this huge consumer lifestyle, especially in the sense of working longer and longer hours have been and having not enough time for families, for communities and for health and exercise and, and uh, participation in those things. So Take Back Your Time was all about how can we make time uh, as big a goal in our society as stuff and trade some of our future productivity and, for, uh, and wealth for more free time instead of more money. So I worked with that on that issue for a long time. We had 10,000 members of the organization at one point. Um, we did really well. We were growing stronger. We got tons of media attention and coverage until the crash in 2007, 2008. And then everything went boom because people didn't care about whether they had time. They just wanted a job. You know, I don't care if I have to work 100 mm -hmm. hours a week. I need a job. And, and so in those times when things go bad, it's, it's harder for people to think about an alternative. But we pushed on with some of that. We had a campaign to um, to try to get a, a vacation law, very, very um, small one, one to two weeks for people. But we are the only major country on earth that doesn't have any kind of law giving people at least a little bit of paid vacation. And so our, our point was, um, you know, and so, you know, I went on, on Fox, television they uh, before i bashed them um i want to say that they were the only uh network to actually even cover the subject so i was on the show and uh at first they were trying to kind of get at me and vice versa and so uh you know the the host pointed like that at me from his studio into mine both separate on screens like you and i are and uh he said you if you want to make america into a 21st century and cause-for-effect France. And I said, oh my God, we're gonna require everyone to appreciate good food and wine. I and mean, what, what's the issue? But, but I backed off and I said, no, it's not that at all. The French have five or six weeks of vacation. We're talking about one or two weeks. We just wanna get this started because we think people are, are suffering a lot from stress and other health issues from overwork. And by the end of the conversation, the host um, kind of came around. He was kind of positive. He said, well, you know, we do work a lot in this country. And maybe some of that makes sense. I don't like the government doing it. But on the other hand, maybe maybe we do need more vacation time. So I felt that, that was positive. Well, that's an example of, of building bridges where you can. Um, let me ask you, uh, you mentioned the the impact of the 2008 housing crisis. We're in another unique time. Uh, what are your hopes or fears for the pandemic as we come out of it? We've had a, we 
been forced into a a new situation dealing with our time, dealing with our priorities, perhaps. Um, I think there are good things that can come from that, but uh, there's, I think, a risk that now work invades even the home even more than it was before. Have you thought about uh, on these issues of work-life balance uh, and that have been a big focus of yours? What, what does the pandemic hold for us? Well, I think there things can go in many directions as, as always, and it just depends on the dialogue and conversations like this and conversations out there in the public about trying to define what the good life is and what we want. And uh, again, there's been some benefits to uh, being, people being at home and making connections that way. Obviously, there's also some some real problems with it, and you know, including kids not being with a teacher in school and this sort of distance learning, which hasn't worked very well for many people. Uh, but I think uh, maybe it it will re- change values a little bit. We certainly haven't consumed as much, and maybe we found that we don't need to uh, consume as much. Uh, that there may be other things. What, what we really miss in COVID is is other people, is connection. It's not not the stuff. It's it's the connection, and hopefully, and and it's it's the opportunity uh, for a lot of us to get out more in the natural world and things like that although you know most of us have done quite a bit of that even with covid but some people are are very afraid almost to leave their home so um i think that there's there's opportunities i think um we need to think about as we go delve into policy you know some of the policies that i think can come out of covid that i do like i mean i i'm a great believer that climate change is real and that we need to, to begin to do something to try to solve that problem. So I do like this concept of a civilian climate corps, like the civilian conservation corps, because it's not like just a welfare program or something. It actually would be two things, paying people to do real necessary work that might allow them to stay in some of these rural communities, to stay in places like Appalachia, uh, where they may not be able to mine coal the way they did, but they may be able to to work in environmental restoration, tree planting, in, in um, recovering some of these uh, cut off mountaintops, turning them into into diverse forests again, and protecting them. It seems like like uh, people can get behind that across the board. I I think that some of these things uh, um, may be able to to allow us to make these bipartisan and multi-partisan connections. And so I see that as a good one. I also see it at national service as a good thing for young people, Um, maybe to uh, allow us to know others better, uh, to break down some of the hostility that was built up between groups. You know, the CCC did a lot for that in the 30s. It brought together, um, you know, these urban kids from New York with these rural kids from, uh, you know, who kind of basically thought each other were less than, you know, and, and, but they came together and they realized they had a lot more in common than what divided them. So I think something like that, uh, you know, that you could have the choice of national service. If you want to do the military, that's one thing, but there would be a choice to do this kind of service and, and uh, build up the kind. I know my VISTA experience, my two years of doing essentially national service 
changed my life completely. And it was a positive thing. And so I'd like to see some of those. Let me ask you about another unlikely pairing uh, that you've uh, done some work on. One of your earlier films before Affluenza was focused on David Brower, the uh, famous environmentalist. And I was recently rereading a, a work by another John, John McPhee, Encounters with the Arch Druid. Oh, yeah. Details Brower's interactions with, among others, Floyd Dominey, who is a longtime leader of the Bureau of Reclamation and a self-styled evangelist of dams. You uh, you had a significant relationship with Brower. You also had an interesting encounter of your own with Dominey. Um, tell us a little bit about that, and I'll just before you do, I'll just I'll just throw out that it seemed like. Uh, these two in some ways show how our political labels don't always make the most sense. And Dominey himself was a product of the New Deal, was very much a big government man. Um, mm -hmm. He just never got the memo that dams were bad. And uh, Brower uh, would certainly be thought of as, as a leftist, maybe even a radical leftist, but his whole thing was about conserving. Well, first of all, one has to remember that David Brower grew up a Republican. He was a Republican well into the 1950s, in fact, when he was in, when he was in his 40s. Uh, I think it was later that, somewhat later in life, that he became a person of the left, which he, he did become later in life. But I, I think Brower was just always interested in conservation. That was the thing. And and, you know, he admired Teddy Roosevelt because Teddy Roosevelt was about conservation. People like that. Uh, Gifford Pinchot, who was the Republican governor of Pennsylvania, a great conservationist. So there was something uh, across. And then you had, uh, in those days, you didn't have the same kind of, of, of polarity going on as today. So one of the big supporters of Brower and the conservation work that he was doing was John Thaler, Republican congressman from Pennsylvania. Uh, much more pro-conservation than Wayne Aspinall, his Democratic uh, kind of counterpart uh, in the Congress, who basically, as, as one person said, that uh, Taylor wanted to save as much as he could, and uh, Aspinall wanted to develop everything that he could. You know, so it wasn't so clear that uh, Republicans were one way on the environment and Democrats were were another. And, and so Brower uh, was, uh, you know became it over the years much more liberal as I would say Republicans became less environmentally, less favorable to environmental issues. Now, um, Brower certainly had, had had the experience of supporting, not supporting, but agreeing to a dam called Glen Canyon on the Colorado River because he wanted to spare Dinosaur National Monument from a dam. So he was willing to accept Glen Canyon as an alternative. He then actually took a trip and he saw what was lost in Glen Canyon. And he, it became for him the great disappointment of his life that he had not stopped this dam. So when Floyd Dominey, who was the architect of Glen Canyon uh, and a great supporter of it, proposed two dams right outside Grand Canyon National Park that would have partially flooded the Grand Canyon itself in the national park, Brower said no, you know, he fought that with all that he had. And the person in the middle was Stu Udall, who we can talk about later, but he had to make a decision between supporting his, his reclamation head, Dominey, or supporting the environmentalist Brower. And eventually he went with Brower. But this, so I had a chance to both uh, spend, and over his life, I spent a lot of time with David Brower. 
and knew him well. I only spent one day with Floyd Domney, but uh, it was a very interesting day. He, he At that time, he died at the age of 100 some years ago, but at that time, he was living on a ranch in Western Virginia, Winchester, Virginia. When I came out and we got out of the car with our camera gear and stuff, the first thing Floyd Domney said to me is, I want to show you my dams. I got seven dams I built on my property for my cattle. All they created all these little reservoirs for the cattle. So he took me very proud. <laughs> and then uh, he was such a larger than life character. I mean, I liked Floyd Domney. You know, I, I, he he was, he was the first thing he said. We sat down for an interview, and Domney says to me, "You want some whiskey?" And I said, "Well, maybe after the <laughs> Well, how about a cigar? He says, you know, I got some Havana cigars. He says, you're not supposed to have them, but I know how to get them. <laughs> I don't smoke. So then he offered me a steak. And finally, we got down to the interview. And he said, you guys, these TV guys, you like sound bites. So I'll give you a sound bite. He looked at the camera and he said, I would build a power dam in every possible hydroelectric site all over these entire United States. How's that for a sound bite? And I said, well, it's perfect. It's the first thing people are going to see of you. So if you want me to change that, let me know now. Because that's going to set people up as, as who you are. You're a strong character. And uh, Dominique was, was fun. He was great. And when the film was done, I thought he would hate it because it was sympathetic to Brown. But it really gave Dominique a chance to say. And I, I, I've always tried to be, I've always said that in my film work, I'm half Fox. I'm fair, not necessarily balanced, but I am fair. And I really don't try to 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 be dishonest about what I, what people are doing, even if I disagree with them. I want to present their views as honestly as they give them. And I think that that happened in this because I found out later. I thought Dominic would hate the film, and I found out later from another producer who talked to Dominic that um, Floyd loved your film. He said he said <laughs> Floyd said, "Well, I know it was about that damn David Brower, you know." And positive about that damn David Brower he says but but he gave me the chance to say what I wanted to say and what more can I ask for so I thought wow that's a that's a real interesting attitude that you don't you know you can you can think like that so I always had a lot of respect for Dominique but I disagreed with him and you mentioned Stuart Udall as being in the middle of that controversy over the dam near the Grand Canyon and that's a focus of of yours now uh, as i recall and you've even in a recent piece at front porch republic uh labeled stuart udall a conservative tell us what you mean by that and tell us what you're what you're up to on udall right now well Stu udall is in some ways a classic liberal he certainly believed in the ability of government to change lives for the better like dominant uh and udall that came from udall's upbringing in a little desert town in Arizona during the 1920s, 30s, when the New Deal brought electricity and water and all kinds of things to that town. And the family, the Udall family, Udall's father and mother and stuff, went from being Republicans to being Roosevelt, Roosevelt Democrats. And the, the kids kind of came with them. So Udall believed in that. But Udall also believed very seriously that we had to conserve things, that we just couldn't use up things so rapidly that we had to pay attention to saving stuff not just um resources but also history you know he started the national historic trust started uh all kinds of the endowment for the humanities to try to, to preserve 
some of our uh, our our humanity's history. These were Stuart Udall ideas, even though he was the Secretary of the Interior, wasn't necessarily supposed to be doing this sort of thing, but he was very interested in art and and other things. And he really believed that we we had to move away from our obsession with consumerism uh, and focus more on saving what we had, preserving beauty, bringing beauty into our lives in some ways a substitute for for stuff. Like I talked about time, you'd always talk about beauty in that regard. Uh, so he he accomplished an enormous amount as, as Secretary of the Interior, but his he had two uh, great defining moments in his life of conflict where he he had to figure out what to do. It was tough. And politicians face that all the time. I think we think it's so easy for them to make decisions, but no. So Stu Udall, the first one was the Grand Canyon. And uh, Udall was a, 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 an Arizona congressman. He'd always supported dams. He believed in the whole idea, um, the Mormon idea, that if you did a lot of irrigation, you could make the desert bloom. And that the Central Arizona Project, as he's called, would do that. It would provide for uh, agriculture and uh, wonders and stuff and, and a growing population in Arizona. So initially he was sympathetic to these dams. The electricity they would bring would be used to pump water from the Colorado into uh, aqueducts and canals to go to Phoenix and Tucson and so forth. But uh, then David Brower, of course, came into the picture. He was adamantly opposed, can't destroy the Grand Canyon. So Udall had to decide, did he want to give up any further political ambition in Arizona? And he thought about running for governor or senator when he was done with Imperial. But he knew that if he went against these dams, that would be the end of his political career in Arizona. On the other hand, he also liked being considered the nation's top environmentalist. And he knew that if he dammed the Grand Canyon, he would be seen as, as an enemy of the environment. So he decided to let the river tell him what to do in his work. So he took his whole family and went on a raft trip uh, to Glen Canyon and then down uh, the Colorado in Grand Canyon. He came away from that saying, this is, this is too priceless. I can't support this. We, we have to stop to stop this. Domini was not happy, of course, but but so uh, he made that, took that position, which uh, he uh, people around him referred to as civic courage, doing the right thing, even if it would cost him votes in Arizona. But on the other hand, uh, he looked for, he, the other big issue for him was the war in Vietnam. And Udolph had originally supported the war, but he came to be critical of it fairly early on. His brother Morris, was the first U.S. member uh, of the House of Representatives, there were some senators, but first uh, representative to openly vocally oppose the war in a speech. And so, uh, and, and Stewart was really opposed. He was feeling like this was a bad thing for our country. And, and But uh, so Johnson kind of called him in and Johnson said, well, Stu, you know, you can, you can criticize the war to me as much as you want. You can say anything about the war you want in cabinet meetings and try to persuade me and the cabinet that this is what we should do. But if you go and do what your brother Mo did, you go public with this, then you probably ought to start looking for another job. Very folksy mannerisms of Johnson. And so you'd all have faced this challenge. What should he do? And he decided that it would be better for him not to go public and to stay on because 
Johnson was really supporting the environmental measures, the parks and the other things that Udall wanted to do. And people will quarrel with that, but I, I honestly think Udall made the right choice, you know, uh, in that. But these, these are some of the kind of things we faced. And uh, Udall later focused a lot of his life on the, the secrecy in our government. So as much as he liked what government could do, he also believed that big government was a danger. That it, especially if it was secretive and if it, if it was not transparent, that it could, could, could and so he, he learned that through his experience in, in working for the downwinders who had been in the path of the Nevada uh, atmospheric testing so that fallout had fallen over them, and the uh, Navajo uranium miners to mine at the mineral that made the bombs. And, and all these people got a lot of cancer. So Udall worked on that. And as he did, he studied the history of the atomic age. And, and, uh, and he wrote a, a great book called The Mist of August about how um, the government had essentially lied for years after years. They covered up what this stuff would do. And he also felt that the, uh, the use of the bomb in in the way we did in, in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and uh, the carpet bombing of Tokyo and so forth, he, 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 that really troubled him because he was a bomber. He was an Air Force bomber, or Army Air Force bomber during World War II. He worked in bombing missions over the, over the Nazi military facilities. In, in, uh, and he, uh, in that, he said, we were always instructed not to do everything we could to avoid civilian casualties. The military targets, of course, there's going to be some so-called collateral damage, but you try everything under your possibility to avoid that. And now here we make bombs whose whole purpose is to cause civilian deaths and casualties. That was how did that happen? And why did we uh, accept that? So these were the things that that, that Udall, I think, what made Udall both a liberal and a conservative, and certainly a, a man of great confidence. Uh, uh, that. And, and the other the other thing about it was that he was very able to work across the aisle. Uh, his he uh, he counted Barry Goldwater among his best friends. Uh, Barry Goldwater, in fact, liked the Udall brothers so much that he even contributed surreptitiously financially to Mo Udall's congressional campaign. In those days, there were no laws about disclosure, and he could do that. He certainly didn't say it publicly because the Republican Party wouldn't like that he gave money to Mo Udall. But this was an example of how these personal relationships and connections sometimes overcame the, the partisan polarity. Same thing, Mo Udall and John McCain, huge friends. I mean, best friends. And John McCain, when Mo Udall was in the hospital in the last years of his life, John McCain came, came to visit Mo Udall without fail every Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock to see him. Um, and this is the kind of thing I think that the Udall story does. Is it's just, we, we need to get back to this. Where we, um, we can disagree without being disagreeable, where we can respect each other and, and for our values and not have to necessarily agree in all the politics. And you're, and you're looking to tell that story through a, through a film, correct? You're, you're yeah. in pre-production on that right now. Yeah, in production, actually. Oh. We're um, both... Uh, Doing, still doing some research. I was just in Arizona for a week, uh, still doing research, meeting, for example, with uh, Sue Udall's kid brother, who's now 92, and still practices law full-time. <laughs> quite a character. 
meeting with a, a terrific Navajo painter named Shanto Bigay, who has looked at the whole uranium issues and things, but just the, the uh, people like that. And then in the meantime, we've done some shooting in, uh, in uh, October, I interviewed Deb Holland. She was then a congresswoman, a friend of the Udalls. Um, and I had no idea at that time that she would be, be appointed by Biden to be the new interior secretary. But so anyway, she's in, in the film and, and uh, we're going off to, uh, to DC in early April to interview uh, former Interior Secretary Bruce Babbitt, also an Arizonan, and uh, uh, Robert Stanton, who was the first black ranger in a national park in the US since the Buffalo Soldiers in the turn of the century. He was appointed to Grand Teton by Udall in 62, because we didn't actually have any black rangers except in the Virgin Islands when Udall took over in 61. Uh, Stanton then became the first and only black director of the National Park Service under Babbitt. Um, so, uh, so we're going to meet those the two of them and interview them, and we're uh, some other things, and uh, off to Texas to, uh, to the LBJ Ranch, where you know spent some time convincing Lady Bird Johnson to do the beautification campaign, and interviewing historian uh, Douglas Brinkley, and in May and uh, June we'll be back in Arizona Mexico doing our filming there. So, so we're Excellent. well along. Excellent. And uh, you've identified in the, in this well in this film, I believe, uh, a theme of uh, politics of beauty. That's one thing you associate with Udall, and that's been a, a one of your passions as well. What do you mean by that? Uh, you talked a little bit about that before. The importance of of beauty. You count yourselves among those who would say that beauty can save the world, and there are other good people in that camp. Across the political lines. By the indeed, way. indeed. So tell us, tell us what you mean by the politics of beauty, and especially in an age where politics seem to be more and more marked by anger. What, what hope do you think it offers for us? Well, that's a good point. I mean, I think beauty is is a wide ranging thing. It can include everything from our conversations to protecting the the, the, the natural beauty of the landscape to uh, building for uh, attractiveness rather than just utilitarian boxes all over everywhere you know but for making places that are that are that people want to be in uh Stu Udall wrote a book called uh 1976 agenda for tomorrow in 1968 actually in which he said that if we did certain things we could we would be well on our way by the bicentennial of the U.S. toward a uh, uh a society of, of beauty of that uh, of places where people would want to live and of dealing with issues like race and poverty and so forth. And one of the things he said in that book was, uh, he said, the gross national product, it's now called GDP, but the gross national product has become the holy grail. And those e economists who are its strongest advocates have no understanding of the economics of beauty. And then Udo went on. So he had the economics of beauty. What was that? It was that, you know, it, it it's important to have these things in our life. They don't, you can't sell, you don't sell them necessarily in the marketplace. Uh, you keep you keep them, you make them uh, for people, but they mean a lot. And a lot of new evidence shows that Udall is absolutely right. For example, a, a big study by Gallup and the Knight Foundation found that, that there were three factors that most made people want to stay 
in the places where they live, make home of the places where they live. And those three factors were social offerings that brought people together in a four ways in a sense of community. So secondly, openness to newcomers and allow, allowing newcomers and new people to actually participate in the city, in, in the community, you know, and have them say not, not all decided by the old guard. And the third thing was the aesthetic. Was the community perceived as being beautiful with, with good access to nature parks and green space? Uh, in 26 cities served by, made by Gallup, from ranging in size from Philadelphia to Aberdeen, South Dakota, these three points came out as the top three in all 26. There were no exceptions. And they, came, they ranked above schools, safety, economics, um, transportation, and other factors that you might, you might think would be higher. So beauty is up there. Another study done by the University of South Carolina upstate in, in um, Greenville, or Spartanburg, um, found that beauty in, in a survey of seven cities done, beauty was the thing about the city most associated with people having a sense of well-being. When you correlated uh, scores on how happy people feel with other scores about what are they what what matters to them. So so the politics of beauty is about understanding that we need those things in our life. And we need to protect them. And we need to build communities like that. And we can't sacrifice it all for the GDP and for the stuff. So to me, all of this is fits together. It kind of comes together. Um, what John Muir once said that once you look at pick out anything by itself, you find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Uh, and 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 I agree. And and Muir had a lot of things like he said like this. And he said, you know, everybody needs beauty as well as bread. Uh, we need bread and roses. Uh, and that's a, an old slogan that I believe very much. And obviously, we have to have a a minimally decent standard of living. We all want that. But beyond that, we have to pay a lot more attention in this country to the things that are not valued in the GDP, that are about money, that are about art and beauty and love, and community and connection, place. Um, so that's where, that's where this is about. And you'd all believe deeply in those things. And you mentioned John Muir, <clears throat> a very important figure in American conservationism. And he's come under some fire recently, uh, again, going to this theme of, unfortunately, beauty not ruling the day, but it seems that anger and resentment rules the day and sort of a quest for ferreting out anyone's, anything anyone has done that's problematic in the past. So, so John Muir is among those who have been canceled. How do you, do you have any critiques for your friends on the left of this cancel culture and the targets thereof? Sure. I, I mean, I do think it's gone overboard. I'm not saying that um, all of it is wrong. Uh, I think you and I talked once about, I, I agree that uh, um, the names of Confederate generals on the bases, uh, because they, they were honored for supporting slavery and sedition and stuff, but John Muir has not been honored in school because he made some racist statements, which he did, and it's fair to criticize those things, but that was not John Muir. I mean, John Muir's life, his actions, the things that he did, and all the things that he, uh, what he, that he's honored for, are still very positive things, and we want to support them, and, and, uh, 
I think we want to inspire young people to have that kind of commitment to, to the land and to beauty that John Muir represented. It doesn't mean we can't say John Muir wasn't perfect. Of course he wasn't. He had these flaws, some of which he certainly corrected later in his life as he, as he came to a better understanding. But if, if we go get so simple as to sort of judge everybody on everything that they ever said and did and cancel them, uh, for that reason, I think we're it's a point where I would very much agree with conservatives that we are getting into a slippery slope. You know, that, you know what's next? I mean, and we we need inspiration. We need, you know, we again we don't honor Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson because he had slaves, or Washington. We honor him for the, the actual really positive contributions they made to to progress in history and. I think that has to be kept in mind, um, uh, and we we really need inspiration, especially now when we have become so cynical. I mean, to me, one of the things that Stuart Udall represents above all else is somebody with a belief in in the future, in people, in the land, and these kind of things, and who was never he. He was critical, but he was never cynical. He never felt that, oh, the hell with it, you know, he'd drink and be merry. And, 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 you know, in fact, he carried that to such an extent, probably almost to a, to a fault, uh, because his grandson told me, you know, and, and his brother, who I just talked to, said, you know, Stuart was always so serious. He was kind of driven by his wanting to make the world a better place. And, um, his son, a grandson said, you know, we'd be having family gatherings and we're talking about what we did for vacation last summer. And Stu would be off in the corner reading a book somewhere and then he'd just suddenly get up and make a pronouncement about why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Because it, he was kind of he was kind of driven. And, and you can laugh at that. And I'm sure he probably would too. But it's that sense that we have this obligation, which came from his family, uh, which came from his Mormon heritage. He he always said that he was a cultural Mormon, although he he didn't continue to practice the Mormon faith. Uh, he did always say that he was a cultural Mormon in the sense that he believed family, community, hard work, and honesty, and these kind of values which he felt were passed down to him from the church. Well, John DeGraff, thank you so much for your time. I think uh, there are fair questions whether beauty will be enough to save us, but I think uh, we can agree that focus on beauty by folks across the political spectrum would be a turn in the right direction today. Any I final so. words for our for our listeners today? Well, I, you know, I think maybe just giving a little thought to how beauty might save the world and because I it just might. I mean, that's what Dostoevsky believed, Solzhenitsyn, others uh, made that point because we know from the studies that beauty does actually make us more generous, more tolerant, uh, kinder, opens our hearts and things. There's, there's plenty of studies. Uh, Elaine Scarry's great book um, uh, on beauty and being just, she's a Harvard philosopher, goes into that, that far from the idea that beauty is a distraction from the issues that we need from, from dealing with race or poverty, I think beauty actually makes us more uh, willing to, to to work to make the world a better place and care about the world. So that'd be my final. Well, on that beautiful note, thank you for your time. We've enjoyed visiting with you and hope to talk to you again. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Have a great day.
Our thanks again to John DeGraff. We close today with the ballad of Frida the Goose. Front porch musicians don't have to be named Wendell, but it never hurts. Here's Wendell Kimbrough with the song from whence our introductory riff comes. I encourage you to check out Wendell's work at wendellk.com. Until next time.
find your way home.